Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This is season four, hashtag zero COVID. It's zero COVID because we're not going to talk about COVID. We're back. Oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in Plenary Session, video edition, joined by Josie Lynn Ethier. Uh, Josie Lynn is an assistant professor at Kingston University, at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Uh, Josie, it's a pleasure to have you join us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You've got a new paper out now, JAM Oncology. This is entitled Practice Patterns and Outcomes of Novel Targeted Agents for the Treatment of HER2-Positive Metastatic Breast Cancer, a Population-Based Study. It's a very interesting paper, and we're going to run through it uh, on, today's, uh, on today's episode. Thank you so much for doing this. Th thanks again for having me. I'm really happy to be here and talk about the paper. And it's out now, JAM Oncology, on July 8th. So this is an interesting paper. Of course, um, folks, uh, of course, your background is in breast and, and gyne oncology. Um, and folks who work in that space will know two pivotal randomized controlled trials that shape our therapy. One is Cleopatra. Cleopatra, of course, is pertuzumab, trastuzumab, and ataxane um, against trastuzumab and ataxane in frontline newly diagnosed uh, metastatic uh, breast cancer, uh, which had an initial PFS benefit. I think in the New England Journal paper, and then later had the OS benefit in, a, in another paper. One of those is a Baselga paper, one is a Sandy Swain paper. I can never remember who's the first author on which one. Um, and then the other study is uh, Amelia, which is a TDM1 study, which was TDM1 versus, was it uh, lapatinib safe cytobine? Cape cytobine? That's right, Cape cytobine okay. and lapatinib. And that also has an OS benefit in a subsequent line of therapy. It does. Okay, so these are the two studies that are practice changing for folks in your discipline for HER2 positive breast cancer. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I was a resident sort of when these papers came out and when they were really adopted into practice and in, in Canada and Ontario, um, where I trained and, and practiced, where they were actually um, approved for funding reimbursement. And I remember as a, as a you know, relatively young trainee, a lot of hype around these papers. Mm -hmm. You know, you could kind of feel the excitement with these drugs coming in and, um, you know, exciting stuff, right? Like new treatment options for our patients and just, um, you know, OS benefit, um, um, yeah, really, really practice changing. Yeah. So would you say that if you, right now, if you have a de novo metastatic uh, patient with HER2 positive breast cancer, um, receive no prior treatment, um, you're going to initially start with uh, pertuzumab, trastuzumab, and ataxane? That's correct. You know, I think that would be considered the standard first-line treatment um, in Canada, in the U.S., and, and really across the world. 
based, now, let me on, ask you based this. on the Cleopatra data. <laughs> okay. Yes. Based on this study, which we're going to talk about in your, and your very interesting real world study that looks at this. Um, but I guess the other question I had for you is what, what's your adjuvant practice like now? Are you, have you pulled pertuzumab to the adjuvant space? You know, in this country, we're very eager to do that because <laughs> it's what put food on the table. But what about in Canada? I actually don't know. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, with um, with some of the studies that have looked at pertuzumab, especially in the neoadjuvant space that yeah. didn't necessarily translate to an overall survival benefit, it's not reimbursed in Canada. Um, and now with some of the, you know, with the Catherine study looking at TDM1, which, you know, in the metastatic setting is from the Amelia study, um, looking at um, looking at its use in, in patients who received neoadjuvant chemotherapy and, and had residual disease, um, we're able to obtain it through some access programs. It's a bit of a stay tuned situation in terms of funding. So it's always a little bit interesting when we talk about the U.S. landscape versus yes. Canadian landscape, because for us, it's really um, like a little bit of a two-tier practice change. Like, yes. you know, first you deal with the the approval of the drug and then we deal with reimbursement because I would say it's probably a minority of our patients who are able to access, you know, funding to drugs through insurance if it's not um, reimbursed by our single-payer public healthcare system. Yes, you have uh, some rational checks and balances that we don't have in the U.S. We've got to run up the tab here. We got to we got to run up the tab. So, but I guess the reason what I'm getting at is that in your study, when you talk about people with newly diagnosed uh, or people with metastatic breast cancer getting initial treatment, they're getting pertuzumab, trastuzumab, and ataxane. They're pertuzumab naive for the most part. They haven't gotten pertuzumab for for the most part. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, Really, you know, I would say the, the majority of our patients, um, I think we have in the paper, it would be a very small amount of patients who would have received, you know, you may have um, patients who have, you know, had a recurrence versus de novo metastatic disease mm -hmm. who have had purchase in the adjuvant setting, but yes. um, that would be a small number That's of, what I was of patients. Yeah. yeah. And then why don't you talk about uh, the Amelia study? The Amelia was the second or se second and subsequent line, wasn't it? It was more than just second line. Yeah. So, you know, and really for in standard practice, I think now it is considered, you know, especially if you're talking about the more straightforward situation of a patient with de novo, <laughs> you know, de novo um, metastatic breast cancer who, you know, would receive the first standard line um, of pertuzumab in combination with trastuzumab and ataxane and would receive um, TDM1, trastuzumab and tansine as a standard second line. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, keeping in mind that at the time um, that Amelia was done, and, and this is kind of where a lot of my interest came in this drug and, and you know, how are we using it? What do we know from it? Um, you're correct that there was, you know, a not unsubstantial subgroup of patients that were re receiving it in a later line. Mm -hmm. um, but the really interesting part is that none of those prior lines included pertuzumab. These were really pertuzumab naive patients right. because these studies were, um, you know, were, were conducted almost concurrently and were published, you know, um, in a, in a relatively close timeline. I see. I see. That's important to know. And that'll have relevance for your paper. I guess the other thing I want to highlight is that, of course, Cleopatra, pertuzumab, trastuzumab, and ataxane versus trastuzumab, and ataxane, it has a PFS benefit and an OS benefit. And the OS benefit is big. Uh, and you can tell us what the specific numbers are. But one of the criticisms of this study that um, that uh, that I had heard and, and uh, that was said at the ODAC for when pertuzumab tried to get into the neoadjuvant space was that the control arm patients in Cleopatra 
Um, not all of them received HER2-directed therapy past progression. And in the US, by this time, we had already started giving people, you know, trastuzumab and ataxane, but you progress. We continue the trastuzumab, you know, really till death do you part, uh, really, uh, you know, indefinitely. Um, and in Cleopatra, they didn't do that. Of course, that will penalize the control arm um, and maybe artificially inflate the delta. But what you're looking at is just the absolute survival in real world people in Ontario who get this triplet versus the people on the Cleopatra study who got those three drugs. So I wonder if you might tell us um, how long did women live who got pertuzumab, tristuzumab, and ataxane in Cleopatra? What was the median OS? And, and was, what did you okay. find when you looked in your cohort? Yeah. Yeah. So um, on Cleopatra, uh, on the experimental arm that included pertuzumab, the median overall survival was 57 months um, compared to a control arm of 41 months. Um, whereas in our paper, when we looked at, so really we were looking at a cohort of women who received pertuzumab um, for metastatic breast cancer, a combination with trastuzumab and of course initially ataxane, and the median survival that we saw was shorter than the 57 months that was seen in Cleopatra. So what we saw was a median OS of 43 months. Mm, interesting, interesting. That's a bit lower. It's a bit lower. 57 goes down to 43. Yeah, which, you know, again, with looking at real world data and, you know, we, you know, you've talked quite a, a fair bit with my colleague, Chris Booth, who's yes. also a co-author on this paper and, you know, talking about issues of generalizability and really with, with you know, um, clinical trials and efficacy effect effectiveness um, gap, you know, th this is really not that surprising, you know, to see it's still, you know, 43 months is not you know, it, it's nothing to, you know, it, it's still certainly a substantial survival, but lesser than what we saw in the trials. Um, and, and again, not that surprising, given that we know that there can be generalizability issues with data from trials when we look at real world populations and what we're actually achieving. Yes. And, 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 and uh, in addition to the OS, the time on treatment, I wonder if you might talk about this. So your time on treatment in the real world versus Cleopatra, what was the time on study drug in Cleopatra? Yeah, so we'll really, you know, we use time on treatment as a surrogate for progression-free survival, um, you know, which is quite, can be difficult to ascertain or, or really impossible to ascertain using um, real-world data. So on Cleopatra, there's a media and progression-free survival of 19 months um, on the experimental arm, whereas time on treatment in our population was 14 months. Right. So again, you know, um, we're not doing a direct comparison here. We're really using Cleopatra data as our historical historical data, um, but shorter. Yes. And you did one further analysis where you tried to pull out amongst the real world patients, the people most like Cleopatra trial participants. I wonder if you might talk about that. Yeah, so we looked at our population and again with this issue of generalizability and kind of trying to get a sense of, you know, why are we seeing, you know, we talk about differences in population, but what's really at play? And we noticed that our median age um, in our cohort, uh, was in our pertuzumab cohort, was 57 years old, right. um, whereas on Cleopatra, that was 54. And based on our Cox models, age certainly appeared to be a significant um, a significant predictor of survival, as, as we could have guessed, right? It right. makes sense. Um, but it was interesting. So what we actually did um, is to try and approximate a population closer to that of Cleopatra. So we derived an expected survival um, based on a Cox model 
model where we set the age at sure. 54. Sure. Um, and that actually improved our expected survival to sure. 53 months, sure. um, which of course is closer to what we yes, would have But still expected. falls short. Still, <laughs> still falls short. Falls short. Yeah. Um, but I found, you know, I was actually surprised when we did that model, right? Because you look at our ages in our population, I mean, 54 median, 57 median, it's a difference, but it's not as though we were looking at a median, you know, at, a, at an elderly uh, population, right? It was not that far off. So really to show just, you know, to me, it really highlights this issue that we can see with generalizability with even a three-year median difference in, in age in our cohort versus a trial cohort, you know, is a, a significant driver looking at, a, you know, it's a, these are estimates, of course, from, from models, but a 10-month difference in, in what we can expect to see. Um, yes, and it really... Indeed you know, drives home for me when we look at this data from clinical trials and then try to apply it to our population, you know, both for policy and reimbursement, but even for simpler things like informed consent discussions with patients using these agents, um, that it's, you know, it's it's not as easy as saying, well, these are the numbers in clinical trials and that's what I can expect in, in my patient. It is uh, actually, I must admit, it even surprised me because if you told me your real world age was 63 and the trial was 54, then I would believe it. But, you know, 57, 54, that's not that far apart. And yet to see sort of such a significant proportion of the overall survival decrement uh, that is uh, that is corrected uh, by merely the age coefficient, I think I, I, I must admit I was surprised. Um, and and it, 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 it does speak to, I think, your point. Um, it must have surprised you too. I mean, because it was just just a few years. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the the kind of key take hope for, for this cohort, for the pertuzumab cohort is that, you know, this isn't, you know, this is in no way invalidating the data that we, the results that we saw from, from Cleopatra, right? It just really goes to show it's not to say that, you know, I think pertuzumab is a great agent and one that I will certainly, you know, con continue to, to use, but it just really goes to show how, you know, you can have a great drug and use it in one population and then use use that same drug in a slightly different population um, and, and you're not going to get reproducibility. Yeah. And I think we'll come back to this because I want to talk about this more and maybe I'll hit them a little harder than you're hitting them. But I guess my point is that, um, you know, what, what you're showing is that the OS itself, the raw OS is shorter, significantly shorter. Uh, and that speaks to the fact that they ran their trial in people who don't look like average Canadian people who are going to get using this drug. So it's a failure of the trial, I think, to some degree to actually run the trial on the people who are actually going to get the drug. Um, but what you haven't been able to do, and this limitation of the way the data is, is you haven't been able to see what's the delta of this drug in the real world, uh, because there is no clean counterfactual and there are ways we could kind of get at it. Um, but if one yeah. even assumes the same hazard ratio as in Cleopatra, it will be smaller than what was observed in yeah. Cleopatra, which if I recall was a 15 month OS gain in Cleopatra, something like that. 16. 16. You're close. Yes, the same yeah, 16, 16. months. <laughs> they love to celebrate that. But I mean, even if you assumed it had the exact same hazard ratio with your baseline rates, I mean, you're probably talking 10 month, 12 months, something in that ballpark, uh, I would imagine. Um, let's talk about Amelia before we, uh, before I, I actually have the solution to all these problems. I have that I can <laughs> fix this whole problem, but okay, let's talk about Amelia. Amelia is even more interesting to me because Amelia is a randomized trial that has changed practice, but now if people are giving, but it's changed practice in a way that it's even less generalizable because now we give pertuzumab before and they didn't have a lot of people in that trial who had previously gotten pertuzumab. 
had no patients in that zero. Yeah, they were they were pertuzumab naive patients, yeah. right? So, and and again, I remember when the study you know um, came out. I remember when we got approval for the drug and started using it, and kind of being you know relatively early in training, and kind of you know this is this is a question I've been having in my head kind of ever since that time of you know okay, so you know how are we using this in this setting? Well, now all of our patients are getting pertuzumab. You know, already seeing you know questions of you know beyond even generalizability, but really you're using the drug in a different setting from where it was studied. Um, and, and, you know, but you, you carry on and you use the drug because that's what, you know, that's what the, the practice is and that's what the standard practice is. But really you've always kind of wondered, you know, we're not talking about huge OS gains with, with you know, you know, we could talk a whole other conversation about what's clinically meaningful and, and, you know, who, who should answer the, who's the best person suited to answer that question. But, you know, we're talking about depending on whether you look at the intention to treat population or um, or the um, the kind of right pre-crossover um, time point, you're, you're looking at a four or five month overall survival benefit mm-hmm. with, with this drug in a population that was pertuzumab naive. Yes, and that's important. So, uh, of course, it was this drug against uh, Zolota lepatinib, which, uh, you know, I will I will say that at the time, I think people thought it was the weakest comparator, um, the control arm. I mean, you could have given, you could have pushed a trastuzumab or uh, there were there were even other strategies at the time. Um, nevertheless, it had an OS benefit. And I guess that's commendable because um, for her true directed second line, I think actually to date, is it the only one that's ever had an OS benefit in second line or did Tucatinib pull it off? I can't remember. It might be, it might still to date be the only second line drug with an OS benefit. I think that it is. I would have to see what's been updated with, um, with Tucatinib, which again, we can talk about comparators yes. and, uh, you know, questions around that. But, Tucatinib. But, yes. Uh, another, un, yeah, a, tri- a trial where you have a drug with blood brain barrier penetration. And of course the right thing to do is put it up against a drug without blood brain barrier penetration and enrich for a brain disease. Sure. Sure. Tucatinib. Yes. I got some problems with that study. I think I discussed it on this podcast. Um, okay. We'll, we'll come back to that. Um, so what you were interested in looking at was the OS of people getting TDM one second line. And you knew something, which is that in your cohort, a lot of people are going to have previously seen pertuzumab. So they've had more HER2-directed therapy than the people in Amelia study. So what was the OS in Amelia and what was the OS you observed for TDM1 in the real world Ontario province? Yeah. So the um, OS that we saw in Amelia was 30, was a median OS of 30 months. Um, whereas what we saw in our TDM1 cohort was a median overall survival of 15 months. So mm-hmm. half. Wow. That is a big difference. That is a big difference. And here also, now what are you going to say the same thing about pertuzumab? Because here, do you really know if TDM, I mean, after someone has gotten pertuzumab, is TDM1 better than alternatives? What are your thoughts? I don't know that we can answer that based off of this study. I don't know that we can answer that based off of any study, right? Um, I think, you know, time will tell us, you know, now we've got all of these new agents, you know, trastuzumab, deruxtecan, tucatinib kind of coming into play and as they will, you know, likely move forward in in the sequence and um, we'll kind of see where they land. Um, I don't think that I could, you know, take from this. Certainly it starts to raise those questions though, right? As you see, you know, good outcomes coming through with some of the still currently later line agents. Uh, but when you start to call into question some of the benefit from um, from TDM1, um, certainly raises that question. Yes. 
I think it was, a, I mean, both of these are very provocative findings. I mean, of course, one, they tell us something we've known all along, which is there is this efficacy effectiveness gap, which you write eloquently about in your discussion. Um, but two, I think that the, the extent of the gap uh, is what kind of surprised me, particularly for the TDM1. I mean, that is far less OS than I would have guessed. Um, uh, and, and again, if, even if one assumes the exact same hazard ratio, the absolute benefit is lower, which means the cost effectiveness is much more unfavorable, um, which is something that people forget. Let me try to restate that. Um, you know, my point is that there are two there are two moving parts. One is, in the real world, people aren't living as long as in the trial. Okay, uh, the drug could still have the same benefit over not giving the drug as in the trial. But if you assume both those things are true, that it still has the same proportionate benefit, but people aren't living as long, you have to assume that the absolute increase in survival from the drug is smaller. And if the price, the price ain't cheaper, <laughs> the price, the same price. <laughs> so the cost effectiveness is going to be more unfavorable. Um, and so I think, you know, places like uh, your Canadian payers should immediately take this data seriously to rerun their cost effectiveness analyses to see if these drugs still are favorable. I think that's one simple thing they can do. I don't know. You, you had many sort of really eloquent points in your discussion. I wonder if you might, you know, what do you think are, is the most important for listeners to know? Well, I think before even getting into, you know, okay. further discussion around it, like the really, you know, so I, I had the same reaction as you when I saw the the median OS and looking at it and saying, you know, okay, it's, wow, it's cut in half. But then we kind of delved into that more and said, you know, so we had both patients that were pre-treated with, that are, I should say, yeah, pre-treated that had received pertuzumab as a prior line. And we had pertuzumab naive patients. Um, about 64%, I believe, of our, of our cohort had received prior pertuzumab. And that increased over time, um, as you would expect, right? As sure. pertuzumab kind of um, came into approval and, and came into um, funding. Uh, so when we kind of broke down that overall survival, that that 15 months. And we looked then at trying to, to, you know, we can't compare them, but at least um, describing in patients that were, that had previously received pertuzumab and those that were pertuzumab naive. Um, what we found was that the median survival in the pertuzumab naive patients, which would have been, you know, the patients most similar to, to um, those treated okay. as part of Amelia, um, that median survival was a little bit better. It was 19 months, still not a 30 month. Month, but sure. but better. Um, but what we saw was that in the pre-treated patients um, who had you know received a prior line, including you know pertuzumab, trastuzumab, and ataxane, their median survival was actually shorter. It was twelve months. So you're looking at a six month you know, difference really in terms of the median outcomes that you're observing in these patients that are pertuzumab naive, similar to the patients on Amelia. Um, and then you're having a, you know, a 12 month, you know, six months shorter median of 12 months overall survival in these pre-treated patients that were not represented at all in Amelia, but that actually represent the majority of patients that are now receiving this drug. Correct. So ultimately, you know, you have a drug um, that that showed, you know, a four or five month survival benefit in a certain setting of pertuzumab naive patients. Yes. And now we have data, descriptive data, but still, you know, data from the real world patients that we're, we're treating, showing that the majority of our patients, these pre-treated patients, um, have substantially shorter survival than those that would have looked like the patients from Amelia. 
Put another way, the more you give pertuzumab, which doctors are giving more and more of, the less well your TDM1 is working. It certainly raises the question of whether pre-treatment, you know, treatment with pertuzumab or receipt of of pertuzumab in a prior line decreases the efficacy of of subsequent treatment with TDM1. I guess I would say, yes, it raises the question. Can it prove? I mean, I think it, I mean, I think you have enough data to say for certain (laughs) that the Delta TDM1 is not the same Delta. It's got to be a smaller Delta. Uh, than it was in Amelia, the the absolute improvement in the, in that cohort in the PD in in the pertuzumab cohort because the absolute numbers are just so pitifully lower than the observed numbers in Amelia. Um, but your point is more fairly stated. I mean, more appropriate nuance. You're a good scientist. Uh, but I I'll, I'll I'll push the hard thesis, which is that um, I think another way to put it would be a trialist could realistically have equipoise to test again whether or not TDM1 is preferred in subsequent lines after initial treatment with pertuzumab. I would I would fully agree with that. Um, you know, there's limitations to the data. It's it's real world data. It's not meant. We're not. You know, we're 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 describing a, the outcomes in a cohort. We're not right. doing a comparison here. We're we're kind of doing comparison to historical data. That being said, we did try to delve into it a little bit to kind of look and see. Okay, well, what's going on here? What bias could be there? Um, similarly, when you you see the same thing when you look at the time on treatment, right? Yes, so looking, you know, kind of looking at this and is this survival time bias? Is this just that we're, you know, identifying patients with more aggressive disease? Well, what we saw is really that the time on treatment, you know, overall in the TDM1 cohort, it was four months, which again is is less than, you know, the the almost 9.6 months that you're seeing with PFS um, on Amelia with TDM1. But when we break that down into the pre-treat, you know, pertuzumab exposed patients and the pertuzumab naive patients, you're looking at eight months and three months, really showing that this isn't just, you know, people with more aggressive disease or people that have, you know, already, you know, lived longer on, on prior treatments, but that there's a difference in terms of, you know, treatment was not prescribed here. This is, you know, when we're assuming this is not a very toxic drug, that there's going to be a low number number of people that are discontinuing treatment due to toxicity, due to non-progression. And and we're seeing, you know, numbers that look substantially different here in terms of how long people are staying on treatment um, based on whether or not they've been previously exposed to pertuzumab. Yes, that's very well put and very well shown in the paper. Okay, I got two ways that I'm going to solve all your problems for you. <laughs> no, okay, okay. So one thing that makes me think about is a paper we wrote a couple of years ago called "Should Evidence Have an Expiration Date?" And what do I mean by that? In oncology, in several places, we've seen transformation in the frontline therapy. So, for instance, in liver cancer, um, people are moving to atezobev. Uh, in kidney cancer, people are doing uh, exitinib, pembro, axipembro, cabo, nevo. Uh, Pembro, uh, you know, uh, whatever the hell, there's some TKI Pembro combo. They love these things and Nevo, Ippy, all these things. So I guess one point I want to make is something that you've observed, which is that Emilia, subsequent line studies are run based on what people who enrolled in that study, what they had previously received. But once you change the frontline therapies in a disease, that evidence should have an expiration date. You should reassess the subsequent line therapies. You are showing evidence that they almost surely have a smaller delta but it's possible the Delta has vanished entirely because now all these patients are heavily pre-treated. Um, they're getting more drugs up front. You, you're nodding. You agree with this general thesis that we got to, in all these tumor types, we got to revisit the second line treatments. 
Yeah. And, and it's tough, right? Because, you know, and, and maybe maybe that is the right answer. I've asked myself in, in looking at this data and, okay, well, what, what could we have done differently? What should we do differently in the future? And it's difficult because, you know, um, trials and, and research and oncology move quickly. And, and, and that's a good thing. Um, not, not always an easy thing if you're in, you know, clinical trial design, right, where you can set out to design the best study. Um, and then another drug kind of comes into a different line. And, and all of a sudden, your, your, your data's, you know, is, isn't, um, you know, you're not looking at the current practice setting Correct. and your data's, you know, is, is it expired, obsolete. as you yes, said, expired, is it obsolete, yes. but but, you know, um, I, I don't disagree with that in concept, you know, it, it, you know, how can we kind of apply that to practice? And, um, you know, that that's certainly something, you know, to, to think about further. But I agree with you. I mean, I think if you change the prior treatments, you can't just make the assumption that you're going to have the same benefit from from your drug if you're no longer using the, the same prior treatments that were being given at the time that your study was conducted. It just, yeah. you know, it, it makes common sense that you can't yeah. make that assumption. Yeah. And I think this is part, you know, we, we do show that here. And I think it's also particularly relevant because trastuzumab is going biosimilar and Zolota is generic. And so it could be a lot cheaper if T Zolota is just as good subsequent line. Okay. Then here's how I'm really going to solve your problem. I mean, I think the kernel of your problem, not your problem, but the problem that is in the, in the world that you are astutely putting a finger on, which is that we in oncology, we got to take care of people who are the average Canadian, the average American, the average person in our country. That's who comes in our clinic. We don't get to say we only take care of trial eligible people in our clinics. We take care of everybody. And we rely on trials. And trials have a lot of explicit inclusion and exclusion criteria from liver function to, you know, you name it. They had to, sometimes some of the inclusion criteria is they had to have had a biopsy you know, that you can get to the tissue and look at it. They have to have measurable disease. So some bone only patients, sometimes they get pushed aside. Sometimes they push out, you know, some people with CNS disease. And then the, the, there's the implicit inclusion criteria, which is they have to tolerate this barrage of study entry without having rip roaring progression. Otherwise you wouldn't think about the trial. You just have to treat them, you know? So there are all these sort of implicit and explicit criteria. Um, what it does is it means that very small differences, like the difference you observed in age, three year difference, translating into 10 month different OS, you know, it's, it's very different. And, you know, a few years ago, we wrote a paper that said like overall survival in a clinical trial with that population is a surrogate endpoint for overall survival in the real world. Cause it might correlate, but doesn't always correlate, you know? Um, so here's the solution that I had. And I, I thought of this, you know, because of recovery trial and um, uh, Rahul Banerjee and I wrote a paper called pragmatic trials with pre-specified subgroups. What oncologists can learn from COVID. Okay. It came out in nature reviews. Here's the gist. The gist is, you know, the way to solve this problem is you need to randomize average people, not just trial people. That's the way to solve the problem. You need a way of randomization when you run a trial where you're just randomizing everybody. Um, you're randomizing with very little to no inclusion criteria because you want to know how the drug will work when you actually give it out the way you give it out. Um, yet, the legitimate concern might be that maybe there is this cohort, people with, say, Charles Pua perfect pristine liver function or people who are a little bit younger and a little bit healthier than the average HER2 positive patient who maybe we want to know that like they might benefit from the new drug, even if other people don't benefit and we can have personalized medicine and use it appropriately. And so what we said is that the recovery trial for COVID actually is like the greatest way we can solve both problems. Recovery randomizes thousands of people and they're very aggressive. They randomize a large fraction of all the people hospitalized. I think I forget the precise numbers in the paper, like 11% of all hospitalized people in the UK were randomized on recovery, which is amazing. So they have very little filter to who they randomized. 
And then their power is so big. Not only they can ask, is dexamethasone work in everybody, but does it work in pre-specified subgroups? Like, does it work if you're on the vent? Does it work if you're on O2? And does it work if you're not on O2? And the answer is, yes, it works on the vent a lot. Yes, it works if you're on O2, but actually it's maybe deleterious if you're not on O2, right? So they, they answer that question. So we could do the same thing in oncology. We could just say, everyone's seeing HER2 positive breast cancer. We're going to randomize all these patients. And then we're going to ask, does it work in the average Canadian, the average American? Does it work in Canadians younger than 60, Canadians with perfect bilirubin, Canadians with perfect, you know, all these things. And we can actually separate, maybe some of these drugs have benefit in ideal scenarios. And we should know that but they don't have benefit as we get into older ages or people whose livers aren't pristine and those sorts of things. And then we can have real personalized and precision medicine. Um, any thoughts? <laughs> well, I think that would be a great solution. Um, so long as then we actually pay attention to the precept of specified subgroups uh, yes. and don't have a primary outcome in all comers and, you know, use yes. that to, you know, approve the drugs in, in, uh, you know, in, in everyone, you know, d despite the outcomes in our subgroups, right. Um, which then I'll, I'll get into a, a whole other pet peeve and, <laughs> and problem that I think we deal with in, in oncology. But I, I think, you know, having these pre-specified subgroups and associated endpoints um, and actually using them to make decisions around who we treat and what drugs we pay for um, would be great. I, I think even in talking about, you know, um, prior treatments, right? And, and there are some studies now, let's say in breast cancer with, you know, AKT inhibitors that are allowing, you know, patients on study whether or not they've received um, CDK4 and 6 inhibitor. And, and that's great that that's, you know, pragmatic in terms of the eligibility and that there's, I believe, a plan to incorporate that in, in pre-specified subgroups in, in the analysis. And then I think we just have to, from there, actually use that to inform who, who we're treating. I think that, you know, that could have, if that had been possible in Cleopatra or in a, in a post Cleopatra study, yeah. uh, sorry, in a post Amelia study, I should say wrong, wrong study, um, that, that would have resolved a lot of the issues that we're kind of delving into here. Yeah, that's well put. Uh, yes. I, I think we, we need that commitment that people actually look at these things and think about them and use them appropriately and, and not just give blanket approvals, but that's a bigger, that's a bigger problem. Uh, I have a solution for that too, but uh, I'll, I'll leave that for interested readers of, of, of the book Malignant. Um, uh, I'll give you the last word, uh, uh, Dr. Ethier. It's a, it's a very elegant paper. It's well done. It's out in JAM Oncology. Um, Practice patterns and outcomes of novel targeted agents for the treatment of HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer population-based study. It's getting at the greatest and most important uh, thing in oncology, I think the difference between pivotal trials and our real practice. Um, I'll give you the last thought. Thanks for doing this paper. Oh, uh, thank you. I, I, I think ultimately, you know, this isn't necessarily saying that we need to, you know, change our practice immediately. And I, I think, you know, it, it draws the conclusion that you can draw from real world data, which understandably, you know, we are aware has limitations. Um, but I think to me, it, it highlights, you know, things to consider in terms of um, future trial design, but also, you know, when we're looking at making, um, you know, treatment decisions for our patients and having informed consent, you know, conversations with patients um, or making decisions around, you know, approval and, and reimbursement. I think it's very important that we not forget, um, as you said, that maybe there is an expiry date on, on studies and that maybe the decision that we make at one time point, we need to continue to reevaluate down the line because even if that was the right decision to make 
a few years back, that doesn't mean that it continues to be if, if you know, the setting has changed. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.